Thank you very much. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. You guys look good. And I'm not just saying that to make you feel good. You look really good today. Thank you so much. Uh, like my wife said, and that is my lovely wife, um, my name is Gino Allison, and I'm the pastor of the South Suburban Vineyard, this church that you're sitting in right now. And I just want to welcome you all. I see some new faces here today. I see some new faces here from the Jewel Outreach. So uh, wonderful to see you here this morning. And I uh, also just want to welcome anybody who's listening to us through our website or through podcast this morning. Uh, you too, are, you also are able to come here, and we're welcome to come here and worship with us on Sunday mornings. Um, I, was, I was driving, I think, on Lincoln Highway this week, uh, and I pulled up beside this car with this guy. He was, he was, he was going kind of wild. He was air drumming. Do you know what that means when I say air drumming? You've heard of air guitar, right? But this guy was air drumming, and he was going at it hard, too. <laughs> and usually, if you catch the eye of a person who's doing something unusual in their vehicle, they'll sheepishly sort of stop or this guy looked right at me, and he didn't miss a beat. <laughs> and immediately I thought to myself, this is my honest and unedited thoughts, I thought, this guy looks ridiculous. A few moments passed, and it occurred to me that I'm that guy. <laughs> I do that all the time. And my wife, you know, I'm usually, if I'm sitting next to my wife in a meeting, I'm just I'm tapping on my leg. She often has to reach over and just... Stop my, stop my hands, or you know, I'm, I was teaching, in the, I was substitute teaching in the classroom, and one of the students said, "Hey, are you a drummer?" And I said, "Yeah." How did you know? He, and he just pointed at my hands, which were just moving on my lap, just drumming. And it's true that drummers uh, just kind of do that. We just kind of do that, and it's it's almost instinctive, you know. And I just thought, man, I look as ridiculous as this guy because I'm doing it all the time. And it occurred to me as I was reflecting that, on that, that there's some things that we do, and we just who we are, some things we just do instinctively, some things we just do just because it's who we are. Drummers, we hear these constant rhythms in our head, or we're listening to a song on the radio, and we think, I could play that better. He should play it this way. And we just go to move. And as I, as I make a correlation between that and faith, there's some things that we do as people of faith just to, should be instinctive. And it also occurred to me that just as I and that gentleman look absolutely ridiculous, I think we must look and sound absolutely ridiculous to the world around us sometimes. When we take a stand on things, when we, t- when we talk about what we believe and why we believe, when we take a stand, we must sound absolutely ridiculous. And I think true faith, real faith, has you standing out in that way. Real faith has you sort of looking ridiculous sometimes, taking a stand that might put you on the other side of what's popular and what's normal as the world around us says it. So if you've been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in the middle of a series that we've been calling Real Faith, Real Authentic Faith, Faith in Jesus, that is. And we've just been using sort of as a springboard for this whole series, this quote, one of my favorite quotes by Dr. Martin Luther King, one of my heroes. And Dr. King quotes goes this way, the ultimate measure of a man or woman is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. And we've been using that quote to sort of say that real faith is not determined how you act, by how you act and who you are when things are going well, when life is just rosy, when there's flowers blooming and there's birds singing, but rather real authentic faith is truly measured by how you are and who you are when life happens. When the challenges and the controversy and the struggles of life happen, this really separates the real people of faith from those who are just sort of fair weather or just sort of posers. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, has given us a great working definition so we can all be on the same page of faith. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things that we cannot see. So our faith is what drives us. Our faith is the motor in our vehicle, so to speak. And that faith is the confidence that what we believe in, that what we, that what we look to, that what we hope in will actually happen. It's the evidence, the inner working evidence of the things or the God or the God's principles or God's promises that we simply cannot see. And when we talk about confidence, we talk about confidence in who God is. We talk about confidence that God is who he says he is, that his promises are true, that they will come through, come through that, that his principles are sure. And if we ascribe to those, that our life will be better than if we ignore them. That's the confidence that we have. And that confidence, as we said, week after week, is measured by nothing more than obedience. Obedience. Don't tell me you have faith in this chair that it will hold you up and you never sit in it. Don't tell me that you believe something and you never lean any your weight on it. So the essence of faith is the confidence that causes us to lean our weight or to invest our stuff or to take some risk or to step out on it. That shows us that we're confident and that is measured by obedience. So through this series, we've been taking a look at some of the heroes of the faith. We've been primarily in the Old Testament and we've been looking at the distinguishing marks of real faith, particularly as it's characterized by people who are facing difficult situations, situations that test their faith, situations that really help them show them the real them, the distinguishing marks of a person of faith. We looked at faith requiring a sacrifice. In the last couple of weeks, we looked at faith requiring a stand as we looked at Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 3. Today, we will focus on one of life's biggest challenges. One of the main challenges that we deal with almost on a daily basis, one of the main challenges that shows us who we really are as a person of faith, and that is the challenge of temptation. The challenge of temptation. And temptation is simply defined as a desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. I think that's a perfect definition of what it means to be tempted. A desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. Temptation, we deal with it all the time. And some of you might wonder, why is it that as a person of faith, why is it that somebody, uh, somebody who's given their life to Jesus, who subscribes to the tenets and the statutes of our faith, who's living a life that pleases the Lord, who's forsaken evil and forsaken the way that the enemy wants me to live. Why is it that I wrestle so much with temptation? Why is it so much that the things that are wrong, the things that are unwise, the things that are imprudent look so good to me? And I, should, I suppose it's a very complex answer to that question, but the simple answer is this. Since you've decided to follow Jesus and forsake Satan and his plan for your life, Satan is not real excited about that. He's not real excited about that. He didn't just say, oh, well, we lost another one. He didn't say, oh, well, I'm glad for him. You know, Jesus is pretty awesome. I can see why they chose the Lord. He didn't say that. What he says is, you know what? Let me put as many things in their path. Let me just, let me just, let me touch those sensitive spots, those sweet spots as often as I can. Let me appeal to that list of things that make them go wow. And trust me, Satan knows exactly what makes you go wow. 
knows that, that body type you like, right? He knows that personality type to send your way. If, if you like him tall, dark, and handsome, he's not going to send you somebody, you know, round and pale. Or if you like him another way, he knows exactly what you If you like an intellectual guy, he's not going to tempt you with somebody who's just a class clown, okay? Satan knows exactly what makes us go wild, and he pushes those buttons early and often. We're talking about the challenge of temptation and temptation of those things that are wrong or unwise. I like the fact that unwise is in there because when we think of temptation, we think of some sultry woman sort of waving to us from, you know, some moonlit window, right? But sometimes temptation is just that TV that you don't need to buy. It's that expense that you don't need to add to the mountain of credit card debt that you have. It was a choice that you, don't, you shouldn't make. As Paul says, all things are permissible, but not everything is constructive. Well, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And God has given us each a plan and a purpose for our lives. And there are some things that are categorically off limits, even things that are not sin. They're categorically off limits because they run counter to the plan that God has for you. And so, therefore, those things, when they beckon to you, when they call to you, they're on that temptation list. They're on those things that are unwise, those things that are wrong as it relates to your life. So today we're going to look at where faith and temptation intersect. In other words, how do we deal with temptation as people of faith, as people of real faith who subscribe to the tenets and principles and the statutes of our faith? How do we deal with temptation? And it's my, it's, it's my, I, my firm belief that if we can figure out how to deal with temptation, we can figure out how to deal with the things that call to us, the things that make us say, wow, if we can figure out how to deal with those on a regular, ongoing basis, then that's half the battle. It's half the battle. You're talking about being victorious. You're talking about walking and, and participating fully, excuse me, in this abundant life that Jesus has to offer us. Listen, if you can figure out how to do this on an ongoing basis, we're halfway there. So I think it's a worthy subject this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. If you haven't, please begin to bring your Bibles with you. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of each row. You can feel free to take one if you so desire. Genesis 39. Before I begin there, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, that you are awesome in every way. I thank you that we get to gather here and worship you together and hear the word that you have to speak to us. Lord, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to worship you. God, I just ask that you would put power on these words today. Many of us deal with temptation all the time, each and every day of the week, Lord. And I just ask that you would provide some insight, provide some wisdom so that we might overcome and that we might withstand temptation. And Lord, I just pray that you put power on these words. Move me out of the way this morning. Let your truth and your light shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at Genesis chapter 39. We'll also be projecting the words to these scriptures on the screens. And this is the story. Uh, this is sort of the beginning, not the very beginning, but near the beginning of the story of Joseph. And some of you uh, have heard the story of Joseph over and over. If you read uh, Genesis chapter 37 through 50, it records the life of Joseph, which is a remarkable story. Joseph is one of my favorite Bible characters. He's a hero of mine as it relates to the faith because he was just such a good guy. I don't think that in all those verses, there's no, that's not a bad word spoken about him, a true, true bad word spoken about him. And Joseph is just one of those exemplary characters of what it looks like to be a real person of faith. 
And we encountered uh, the beginning of Joseph's story. At eight, uh, at eight, he's only 17 years old in Genesis chapter 37. He's the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And he gets himself into hot water by telling his brother his dreams. God gives him this, these dreams that if you continue through the story, you'll find that they eventually come true. These dreams are symbolic of what will happen to Joseph, his rise to power. And his brothers didn't like it. He didn't like that uh, Jacob had a favorite son and it wasn't them. Didn't like that Joseph got this beautiful coat of colors which just re represented, sort of rubbed in their faces that he was the favorite son. So this jealousy and this anger and this envy begins to boil over and they conspire against him to kill him. But they decide not to kill him. Instead, they throw him into a pit and then they sell him to these uh, slave traders as they're coming by. And, and, and Joseph is swished away, a 30-day trip to Egypt where he is enslaved. And we pick up the story there, Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian, Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the god of, for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. And all his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food he wanted to eat. Joseph was very handsome and a very well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? And it would be a great sin against God. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room and raped me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you bought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Verse 19, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. What a fascinating story. 
And if you read the entire story of Joseph, you'll find it as fascinating. But we'll focus today our attention on chapter 39. And as, all, as, as each week we've discovered, as we've looked at these heroes of faith, we see a perfect picture, a perfect picture of faith when we look at this story of Joseph. Perfect picture of faith, but more than that, we see a powerful dual picture here that's painted for us. Because in this story, we see temptation at its height, and we get to see a person who responds to it well, and we get to see a person who responds to it poorly. Joseph, as we've read the story, responds well. He's a perfect example of how to respond to temptation, how to deal with it, how to work through it, how to try to avoid it. And of course, on the other hand, we have Potiphar's wife, who is an absolute horrific example, a terrible example of how to process and deal with temptations, those things that call to us, those things that say, come over here and check this out. So we have a powerful dual picture that we'll look at briefly this morning. And I I guess I ask the question as we work through this is, which one are you? In other words, on a regular basis, are you the picture of faith? Are you the picture of what we should do, how we should process temptation? Or do you stand on the other side of a very clear line? And are you the person who caves, who gives in, who goes for what the heart wants? And we'll look at this picture. But before we do, we just have to ask a very important question. What kind of person was Joseph? What kind of person was was Joseph? If we read through those first six or seven verses, we find that he was a slave, but he he was not only a young slave, but he was a very impressive man. He was loved by God. He obviously loved God very much. And he was blessed and highly favored. He was blessed and highly favored. Here's this guy. He's a captive in Egypt, a slave, but yet he's in charge of lots of stuff. This guy is so impressive that his captor is putting him in charge of stuff, making him the steward of all these things. And there's just something, as, as if we're honest about it, there's something that's especially impressive about success in youth, right? Something very impressive about that. And we even saw a bit of that when we looked uh, last couple of weeks in the, in the book of Daniel. We looked at Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. These guys were very, very young. Yet they had wisdom beyond their years. They were trustworthy. They had all sorts of insight. They were very skilled. They were very learned. And there was something just very impressive about success and youth. Look at the founder of Facebook. Look at, uh, if you've been watching the Olympics the last day or so, you just, I mean, I was watching the Olympics yesterday, and they, they mentioned that this one girl from the USA, she was uh, 17 years old. They didn't say anybody else's age. Why did they say her age? Because that's impressive. Youth and success, it's impressive. So what we know about Joseph is he was an extremely impressive young man. He was very successful. What he put his hands to um, prospered, and Potiphar was uh, able to see that. So what kind of woman was Potiphar's wife? Honestly, we don't get any, uh, you know, we don't get any, any real backstory on her other than the sort of main event where all the drama happens. But regardless of whether we get a good report on, uh, on Joseph or whether they find out that he's young and handsome and godly and blessed and impressive and good looking, all those fine attributes are w- wonderful and fantastic. But guess what? What we've been saying week after week is all that stuff doesn't matter unless you pass the test. 
unless in those defining moments you come out as a person of faith or you make the right decision. So we transition from this introductory story of how Joseph is this fantastic individual, successful individual, noteworthy individual, and we move very quickly to what I'm calling the defining moment. Talking about temptation this morning. We move to that defining moment, the moments in life that really show us what we are made of. And you can walk tall, and you can read your resume and read your press clippings and talk about how good you are when life is going well, when you're not tempted, when you're not tested, when controversial things and challenging things are happening to you. You can walk with your head held high. You know, that doesn't impress me much. What impresses me, what makes me take notice is how you respond, as Dr. King says, in those times of challenge and controversy. And for the purpose of today's talk, how you respond in the defining moments of temptation. When Satan dangles that thing in front of you that makes you say, wow, and makes you take a second look and makes you sort of look and see who's around. How you respond in the defining moments of life. And if you're like me, you have these every single week, multiple times a day where you have the opportunity to do what's right or do what's wrong. And I submit to you today that it's in those moments that we see what our faith is made of. It's in those moments. So just look at, let's look at this story and let's see how these two characters deal with these defining moments. Verse 7, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Verse 8, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire house. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held nothing back from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. But she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around. When he went in to do his work, she came and grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, come sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Now, both are in a unique situation. Both are in a, a position of temptation. They both have an opportunity to do something that dishonors God. Here's a good-looking woman. Joseph finds himself uh, in a situation where he has a willing participant. And let's just assume that Potiphar's wife is, is worth looking at and perhaps even worth taking a second look at. Joseph has a willing participant, perhaps a good-looking woman, opportunity. And not only that, he's dealing with a person who's in a position of authority. Somebody who can easily, as we read in the story, control his fate. Four or five things weighted against him. Four or five fingers tugging at him, calling him to, 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 to make a decision, to make a choice. Of course, we see Potiphar's wife. She's in the very same situation, only she's on the other side of it. She's a person of power. She's a person of influence. I don't think that she hears the word no a whole lot. And part of me uh, feels like this isn't the first young brother that she tried to accost in the corners of the palace, in the corners of her, perhaps her very own house where a hired hand is doing the work for her, her husband. My guess is that this isn't her first go at it. Perhaps she's even a little surprised that it's taken so long for her to get an opportunity to do what she does best. And we get an opportunity, a unique window, into how 
each of these guys responds in these defining moments. And as we look at these individually, ask yourself, which one are you? First, let's look at Joseph's response. His wife is looking lustfully at him, making a bold demand, come and sleep with me. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire house. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held nothing back from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked and evil thing? It would be a great sin against God. Now let's break that down just a moment if we can. Joseph took some time to stop and sort of employ some logic here. He said, let me think about this for a second. Why would I do this? He counts the cost. He says, I'm in charge of everything. This is, a, this is a sweet gig for a slave. This is a sweet deal for a slave. Why would I throw this away? You're all right, but you're not that good looking. Why would I do that? And I ask you the question this morning, how many derailments, tragic derailments that we see in the world around us, in the news every other week, how many tragic derailments of character and position might have been avoided if the cost had been considered. If the cost had been considered. What if Bill Clinton just stopped and thought, you know what, this, is, this isn't going to end well for me. This is a bad deal right here. What if Jimmy Swaggart had thought, you know, maybe I should cut this out. What if Jesse Jackson Jr. had said, man, maybe, maybe this isn't a good idea to have this affair. What if Coach Jim Tressel would have just come clean and said, you know what, let me just, let me just do the right thing here. What about John Edwards or Elliot Spitzer? And we look at the tarnish, the tragic story of Joe Paterno. Storied, the, one of the winningest coaches in, in, in NCAA history. Beloved by, I don't know, any person didn't like Joe Paterno. Not a single person that I talked to. Adored, a statue in front of the stadium. What if Joe had said, you know what, this thing is, not only is it wrong, but this isn't going to stay quiet. Let me count the costs and let me figure out how to do the right thing on the phone. What derailments might have been avoided if somebody just said, you know what, let me just think about this for a second. Let me just ponder this for a second. And some of you think about your own life and you think about the mistakes that you've made, the ways you've derailed your own life, the way you've made a mess of your finances and you've misused your sexuality and you've uh, thrown away relationships. And you've squandered God's love and the, the grace that it gives you. You think, what might have happened? How might I have responded differently had I just took a moment to say, man, I shouldn't do this. And Joseph, as he's talking this through with this woman, who is clawing it, he says, listen, this isn't a good idea. This is not a good idea. But that's not where he stops. I think the, 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 the best thing about Joseph is that he's a person of principle. He's a person of principle. Now, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about what it means to take a stand. What we've, what we've understood is that if you don't stand for something, if you don't decide in advance who you're going to be and what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, you're just going to be blown by every desire, every temptation, every political piece of uh, propaganda that comes your way. You're just going to be swayed through life, bouncing like a ping pong ball. If you don't have some principles, if you don't have an understanding of how the world works if you don't have a real foundational view of how the world works. And the principle is simply defined as a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as a foundation for a system of beliefs or behaviors or for a chain of reasoning. Man, I, I just, I put so much stuff in that definition in bold. 
Because I mean, it's all sorts of stuff in there. Fundamental truth. It serves as a foundation for a system of beliefs and behaviors for a chain of reasoning. Principles. Get the principles in your life and they make the decision for you. Principles make the decision for you. Every question that comes into your world, you go, oh, what am I going to do here? Oh, I wonder, let me, let, me, let me see what Dr. Phil has to say about this and let me call this person. Listen, but you make some really hardcore principles. Listen, my principles make the majority of my decisions for me. And I submit to you today that Joseph responded well because he went into the situation being a person of principle. Being a person of hardcore principles. And the principles stand firm and they don't move, you move. Heard a story uh, once uh, about um, this ship that was uh, coming, uh, that was making its way uh, through this body of water and it radios ahead because it sees uh, a light in the distance. And the ship radios and says, hey, this is the great, you know, whatever the name of the ship is, you need to change course, we're coming through. And the radio person on the other end of the radio responds and says, no, you need to change course um, because that's how it's going to be. And it said, no, this is the great ship. We're coming through, blah, blah, blah. We're coming through. And the, finally, the guy responds and says, no, this is the lighthouse. You need to reroute. <laughs> and that's what principles do. Principles aren't the things that you just shuffle around over and over whenever situations come to bear. Principles, you move, Okay. You reroute. You change course. And this is what Joseph understood. For simplicity's sake, Joseph's principles were the same as what ours should be. To love God and to love people. The very core of the, of the commandments. The greatest commandments. To love God and love people. And we see that as he works through this response to Potiphar's wife. He says, listen, how could I do this? How could I betray this guy? He's given me all this sort of stuff. He's put me in power. How could I do this? It's unthinkable. But the biggest and greatest principle, which should be all of our starting points, by the way, is that he feared the Lord. It's interesting is Joseph didn't say, listen, these guys are going to be back soon. How are we going to pull this off? He didn't say, well, how much time do we have? Well, listen, I really don't think, you know, this is going to be a good idea. He didn't waver. He says, listen, how could I sin against the Lord? Foundational principle number one, fear the Lord. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of understanding how you walk through this life and have prosperity and have functionality in your life. Isn't get, you know, the purpose driven life, although it's a fantastic book, my brother Warren. It's not to find all the secrets to living life. He says the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Having a reverent fear of the Lord. In other words, you know what? I'm not going to do that because that's a bad decision. But at the bottom of that, the Lord said not to. Because God, we are created for, by God and for God. And the quote continues, until you figure that out, life will never make sense. Created by God. For him. And that's a principle. I fear the Lord. It doesn't matter that I just, it doesn't mean I just, I'm so afraid of the Lord that I can't even pray or just try to hide from him. It means I understand that this guy is, is the real deal. And you want to be on his good side. You want to be in his favor rather than on his raft list. Joseph feared 
the Lord. Who would you be if you feared the Lord? How different would you be if you feared the Lord? What would you do if you feared the Lord? I mean, if you really feared him. What would you do with your time? How seriously would you take God's stuff if you really feared him? What would you do with your talent if you really feared the Lord? What would you do with your treasure, your money, your stuff, your wealth? What would you do if you feared the Lord? You know, people come to me a lot with their problems. I don't know why. They come to me a lot with their problems. And you know the root of the vast majority of those problems? The root is that people don't fear the Lord. You say, come on, pastor, that's an overstatement. It's not. It's not. The root is that people don't fear the Lord. They're making decisions. They're living their life. They're managing their sexuality. They're managing their money. They're managing their futures. All without a fear of the Lord. And when you run through your life that way, you're going to find issue after issue after issue after issue. We don't have that principle as number one in your life. People with money issues. Figure like as long as I'm not doing something sinful with my money, I'm okay. Well, look at, look at how's that working out for you? People managing their time just according to their own whims and according to their own desires and everything that makes them say wow and everything that calls them from a dark corner, you go and check it out. How's that working out for you? How's it working out? Who would you be if you feared the Lord? What stuff might you pass on if you feared the Lord? What relationships might you rework if you feared the Lord? How regular would you meet with God? How regular would you come to church? How regular would you serve if you feared the Lord? If you feared the Lord. How might your children turn out differently if you feared the Lord? This is principle one for Joseph. He said it would be a great sin against God. Case closed. Case closed. Standing firmly on the other side of that line, we see how Potiphar's wife responds. She doesn't respond with principles. She doesn't respond with fear of the Lord. She looks at him lustfully. She's in this defining moment. She's in this situation here, and she looks at him lustfully. Isn't that how it always starts? You're minding your own business, and then something, you go, oh, my goodness. Oh, that lady is fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, look at that. Look at that gentleman. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. And it starts with a look, doesn't it? Now, I say for the, just for matters of clarification that temptation is not wrong. I mean, it's not wrong to be tempted. That's a natural part of life. That's a natural part of deciding that you're going to live for the Lord. You're saying, I'm going to choose these things over those things. But you're still human. The core of you is still sinful and selfish and largely unconverted, so it makes sense that those forbidden things will will, will look nice to you or you might take interest in them. But she not only looked at him, but she pursued it. I imagine that the battle began already in her mind. She perhaps didn't just take the look and go, well, that's that's off limits. Let me go and do something else in another part of the house. She thought to herself about how, how might this guy, how might he be? And I don't need to continue that. She just, she thought about it. She thought it through. And decided at the end of that lustful look and that lustful thought that this is something that's worth pursuing. 
This is something that's worth pursuing. So she propositioned him. That's too soft of a word. She threw her weight around and said, let's get this thing done. You can pick which room we want to do it in, but let's get it done. I'm Potiphar's wife. You don't say no to me. Let's get this thing done. And Joseph refused, which must have shocked her, and she pressed in even further. Every day, the scripture says, she pressured him daily. So here she put in the situation where she sees something that she likes, and she goes for it. She goes for it. Why? Because she's a person of principle? Absolutely not. Because she thought it through? Yes, she thought it through, but in a bad way. And we see Joseph as being a faithful person, a person of principle, and she finds herself being an impulsive person. And how many of you know that being impulsive will always give way, always give way to derailment and failure and a fractured life, being impulsive? An impulse is simply a sudden, strong, and unreflective urge or desire to act. Strong, it's sudden, it's unreflective, you haven't thought about it. It's like somebody hypnotized you and you just, oh, okay, that's what I want. That's where I'm going. It's sudden, it's strong. And these impulses come just like the wind blows, man, every second of the day. And if you're an impulsive person that doesn't give pause to think, that you don't pull out your cheat sheet and check your values, and you're not a person of principle, you will derail your life just about every day of the week. And this is this woman. She's con 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 conditioned to be impulsive. And how many of you know people who are in positions of power have it bad because they're not used to people saying no? And we're living in a world. We're raising a generation of children generation of folks that aren't used to hearing the word no. You know how I know? Because I'm a substitute teacher. And I got a front row seat. You know how I know? I get 30, 40 young men that come in this gym every single week and play basketball. I had to call the cops this week, kick a kid out. And you know what occurred to me? This kid doesn't hear no that often. Somebody forgot to tell this boy no. Define what that means. She wasn't used to hearing no. She was impulsive. She just reacts. Sudden, strong, unreflective urge. Contrast that with a fundamental truth, foundation, system of belief, all those things that make up a principle where she stands on the very opposite side of this. Impulsive. And some of you are dead up to your eyeballs because you're impulsive. Some of you have a laundry list of people that you've slept with because you're impulsive. Some of you, emotional, relational baggage because you're impulsive. Some of you, health is failing because you're impulsive. Some of you, the list can go on and on. And even now, some of you are thinking about the impulsive things that you do that you know are destructive, that you know are damaging, that you know go against the grain of what God has called generally for us to do, specifically for the life he's called you to live, and yet you can't help it. There's that substance that you abuse. There's that person that you go to over and over and over and over again. Joseph responded well. She responded poorly. And as we see, she responded poorly. She was also very dishonest. So she got Joseph in trouble. And Joseph did the right thing. So the next verses should read, and the, hope, the heavens opened, and God came down on an escalator and just rocked Joseph in his arms. That's how the story goes, right? 
wrong. There was immediate fallout. Joseph was lied on. Potiphar's wife put pressure on Potiphar to respond. Now, how is he supposed to respond to that? Oh, just, he didn't mean it. Potiphar was angry. He threw this guy into prison. What's my, Pastor, what's your point? There are often immediate consequences to, do, to being a person of principle. It's often immediate fallout for doing the right thing. I don't want to mislead you here today. I'm talking about real faith. I'm not talking about the, 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 the goofy stuff. I'm not talking about the goofy stuff. I'm talking about the real deal stuff. You might get in trouble for doing the right thing. You might have some folk mad at you because you did the right thing. You might lose some friends. You might leave some money on the table of certain business deals because you do the right thing, because you go in the opposite way of, uh, of temptation. So let not the immediate consequences determine whether or not it was a good or bad decision. Because oftentimes, it doesn't work out well immediately. And sometimes, you may not want to hear this, it won't even be made right until we get on the other side of this thing and we're standing in the face of Jesus. And that's a sobering truth. That's a sobering truth. That's why we fear the Lord. Because we can't let the circumstances dictate. We can't let the immediate fallout determine how we respond to that situation next time. Fear the Lord. There was immediate consequences. Joseph finds himself in prison. In prison. In prison. So let's look at the Lord's response because we've been highlighting that each week. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Here he is getting favor again. Here he is being impressive again. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Now, the immediate fallout was very unpleasant. Joseph's in jail. He's like, not only am I a slave in Egypt, I'm in jail now. This is terrible. This isn't working out. But there Joseph is. He's a person of faith. He's a godly person. And like cream, he seems to rise to the top in everything he does. Read the rest of the, the, the story of Joseph through, ver, through, through chapter 50. He rises to the top. He's that kind of guy. Because God blesses faithfulness. God blesses faithfulness wherever he sees it. He blesses faithfulness wherever he sees it. And I just want to encourage you because some of you are very tempted to cave. And to give in to temptation on a daily basis. And some of you, your temptation is to give up. You're out of that honeymoon phase where life is sweet and the prayers are being answered. And the cupboards are full. You're out of that, you're out of that point and you're in, you're in that defining moment stage now where the where rubbers met, met the road. Where, you, where we really see what you're really made of, how deep your faith goes, how abiding it is. And some of you are tempted to give up. And the word of the Lord for you today is God responds favorably to faithfulness. Faithfulness. Let me wrap this up. My time is getting away from me. What's the big picture here? How can we put this all together? How do we put legs on this thing and walk it out? Um, so the question we have today, I'm sure you're asking, is how do we deal with temptation? No matter what stage you are in life, you're a four, four-year-old. 
tempted to go in and steal a cookie at night, you know, or a teenager having to make decisions about friends or sexuality or, you know, what you do and all this other, whether you're an adult or grandpa, every stage of life you have to deal with these issues. And the question we ask ourselves is how do we deal with temptations? Where I, I got three things for you this, 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 this morning as we wrap this up. The first thing is be a person of principle. Be a person of principle. We're never going to get away from this as, a per, as people of faith. Beforehand, you got to sit down and decide who you're going to be. Beforehand, you got to figure out what you stand for. Before, and I use this example of all the time, you got to know before you get in the car and the windows are all fogged up what your sexual ethic is. It's a terrible time to try to figure that out when everything is hot and heavy. Okay? You got to figure out what your, what, what, what your morals lie, what your principles lie before your boss calls you into the office and asks you to fudge those reports to make the company look more profitable, right? You got to figure out what your ethic is before you, 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 somebody tries to pull you into a gossiping, defaming situation. And the list goes on and on and on. You got to be a person of principle. And some of you are late in your life or relatively late in your life and you haven't figured out where you stand. You don't fear the Lord. And you don't let that fear of the Lord govern your whole life and make your decisions for you. And my question to you is how long? How long does it have to take? How many derailments are you going to have? How much resource and time and relationships will you squander before you figure out that there's no, there's no beating this system? There's no beating this system. There's God's way or it's the highway. It's God's way or the hard way. You've got to be a person of principle. The second thing is you have to discover as you become a person of principles what to run towards. You have to discover what to run towards. You, gotta, you know, we always talk about, you know, what we should avoid, and that's very important. We'll talk about that. But it's important to understand what we should run towards. You know, a lot of these people that darken my door because they have problems, they're running toward the wrong things. Running toward the wrong things. And the number one thing that you should run toward is Jesus. Because Jesus isn't, he isn't in the company of all of this foolishness. In fact, he's on the other side of the room. Now, he mingles to save, he mingles to redeem, he mingles to restore. But in terms of principles, Jesus is way over here. So if I'm running toward Jesus, guess what? My back is to a lot of stuff. My back is to a lot of stuff, and a lot of that stuff, I don't want anything to deal with, man. So I say, start by, well, what should I avoid, or what should, you know, what movie should I watch, or, you know, what music should I listen to, well, who should I date? Let's start at square one. Run toward Jesus. Run toward Jesus. And as you run toward Jesus, as the song says, turn your eyes toward Jesus, look full on his glorious face, and the things of earth will grow strange and death. The closer you get to Jesus, man, the further in the distance those things get. So figure out what to run toward. You're having issues with being tempted by the opposite sex. You better run to your wife. Better run to your husband. Run toward the things that you're supposed to run toward. And I can go on and on, but I think you get the picture. And the last thing that I have to encourage you and tell you and challenge you this morning is figure out what to run from. 
Figure out what to run from. Listen, I know the things that make me say, wow. I know the things that my head almost instinctively takes a second look at. And you know what is my duty? You say, well, just because you're past. No, it's my duty as a person that fears the Lord to run in terror from those things. To run in terror from them. Listen, I know the type of woman that makes me say, wow, or the type of personality type that I'm drawn to. I know what tempts me, you know, what feeds my ego when I get attention. I know what that is. And I put that on the do not engage list at just about every cost. Just about every cost. I know what I have history with. A background with pornography. Listen, there's, there's some things I, I, gotta, I got some precautions I have to take. There's some things that I won't do. There's some places that I won't go. And you know what's at the root of almost every derailment that we, that we deal with? It, it's sinful pride. You're going to be the slick guy that beats the devil at his game. You're slick enough to ingest pornography over and over and over, and you won't succumb to, 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 to it's, it's the, you know, the way that destroys your life because you're going to be the one guy. You're going to be the one guy that beats it. You can just consume alcohol over and over and over and never put any limits on that. You're going to be the slick willy that doesn't get hooked. You're going to experiment with drugs and be reckless and go against the grain of God's word as it relates to substance. You're going to be the guy that, that beats that, that can partake without getting hooked. You're going to be the person that does that. You can misuse your sexuality. And you can step out on your wife or you can flirt with disaster and you're going to be the slick person that doesn't succumb to that, to that, to that detriment. You, you're going to be the one. You're going to be the one guy or the one girl. You can constantly grate your life against the grain of God's word and think that you're going to make it. I got news for you. You won't. And if you look behind you at the wreckage, at the fruit of the life that you've lived pursuing those things, not telling yourself no. Well, it answers the question, doesn't it? So you better figure out what to run from. You want to get your finances in order? You want to have some financial wholeness in your life? Guess what? You got to say no. Don't go to Best Buy. Don't go. You know that website where you spend all your money? Don't watch QVC if you got a QVC, you know, itch. Listen, you're trying to kick certain habits? Listen, if, you, if you're a recovering sex addict, guess what? There's some places you ought not go. My wife's always trying to drag me to the beach. I said, honey, I don't need to see people in their underwear. That's not good for me. I got history. And she used to get mad at me, but now she understands. I said, baby, do you want me to have fruitful longevity with you? You want me to keep my mind pure? Help me out with this. She was watching the beach volleyball on the, on, the, on the Olympics, and I walked out of the room. Where are you going? Listen, honey, do you see what's on TV? That's calling to me. It looks good to me. I need to get out of here. I don't need to go through the whole list, but you figure out what you need to run from. Listen, there's no condemnation, as I say every single week, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you want to have fruitful longevity, if you want to cross the finish line of this thing, you better figure these things out. Better be personal principle. 
You better run toward the right things, namely Jesus. And you better get it loud and clear in your heart what you should run from. What you should run from. And I'll say this as I close. We always uh, push mini groups. Mini groups are just accountability groups. They're not like small groups. The purpose, myself and my two accountability partners, we get together each and every week unless there's some major conflict. And we don't sing songs. We don't get the guitar out. We don't talk about the basketball game. We talk about where we fell down in life and those things that call to us. And we say, brother, help me. Call me on Wednesdays because that's that day I got that thing. Or check with me and make sure I've had this discussion with my wife. Just help me, help me, help me stay straight. Help me cross the finish line of this thing. Fruitful longevity. If you're interested in mini groups, listen, talk to me about it. We get something worked out, but you're not going to make it if you don't do this stuff. The finding moments in our life tell us who we really are, how we deal with temptation, worship band, you can come up, really makes a huge difference. So where are you today? Be honest with yourself and take it to the Lord. And there'll be opportunities for you to come up and get prayer as we work through these things. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth, oh God. We thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us to figure these things out on our own. But, Lord, you speak to us through your word and you give us opportunities, Lord, to get this right. Lord, it's clear to us that you want us to succeed. You want us to pass these tests. And you want us to do so with flying colors. So, Lord, for those of us among us, those among us today, Lord, who are struggling with this, who often give in to the things that call out to them, who often struggles with the things, Lord, and I just, I just pray, Lord, that you would, you would provide strength and courage. Strength and courage for those who need strength and courage. Lord, some of us had defining moments this week, some of us this morning, some of us last night, Lord, and we just, we didn't do well. And Lord, would you just give us an opportunity to honor you? Help us to be a person of principle, Lord. Help us to run toward the things that we're supposed to run to, and help us run in terror from those things, Lord, that take us far from you. Though we know that you would infuse us with strength and courage and power to do your will and to do life your way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.